cop-out answer, but no, it's the idea that your successes are also your failures because you weren't aggressive enough, you were too conservative. You know, those moments happen where I feel they're one of the same. That's so good. That was Andy Rieger, and this is Guild Stories. Andy, um, hey, welcome back to Guild Stories. We are sitting in the Hey Hey Club with Andy Rieger, the president of J. Rieger & Co., and um, maybe one of the most amazing stories in the city. So tell it to us. Andy, welcome aboard, man. Thanks, Thanks for having, having me, Justin. Dude, it's good. It's good to have you. So, we met in a previous life, and uh, it's, it's awesome to see your new digs. Previous life is in, like, literally decade ago yeah. previous life like legit previous life yeah a, a long time in the entrepreneur uh world. so so i run j rieger and co and j rieger and co is a kansas city-based company uh, the high level and j rieger and co first and foremost is a distillery and the cool thing about j rieger and co is it's a family business without it being the traditional sense of what everyone assumes family business to be so what that really means is that back in 1887 uh, my great, 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 that's three greats, grandfather was named Jacob Rieger, and that's the J and J Rieger and Co. And he was the immigrant of the family. He came over from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, came to Kansas City in the early 1880s, and started J Rieger and Co. in the West Bottoms. And the reason why it was in the West Bottoms is because the West Bottoms was the industrial territory at that age of Kansas City's time. And so you had the East Bottoms, which is where people first settled, and it became the farmland for the city. You had the river market, which was where commerce was all done. And then you had the West Bottoms, which was the industrial side. It's where the train station, which was called Union Depot was. It's where we all know the livestock exchange was down there. And so you just had all those old, beautiful buildings that we still see today in the West Bottoms. And Jay Rieger and Co. was in one of those uh, buildings been raised. But you skip forward from about 1887 to about 1900. And that's when his son, Alexander, took over. Alexander Rieger was my double great grandfather. And Alexander Rieger was the marketer of the family. So he was the one that actually started implementing tactics that his dad never did, who was the doer of the family. Yep. That's kind of the way you hear about family businesses. It's like every generation has a different skill set, hopefully. Yep. Yep. And usually sometimes a generation <laughs> skill set is to just fuck it all up. You can bleep that out. <laughs> there's, uh, there's no bleeping, but, which is good. But, so but, you but, say that but from that side, well. Alexander's was all about marketing. And so mm -hmm. he really implored more or less two tactics that we feel really Built, to, uh, built the company to be in a position to where we were able to bring it back today. And one of the things was he started doing mail order delivery. And so what mail order delivery was, was essentially they would put ads in newspapers, they would send direct mailers to people's homes. And if you think about the early 1900s, if you were put into that place, you had no TV, you had no radio, and people drank in order to get enjoy through, themselves to and get, get through. through the day. Yeah, yeah. 100%. You know, so, so from there, Alexander Rieger would send these mailers to people's homes and they would receive mail addressed to them. Awesome. Someone was speaking to them. Mm. There was no such thing as spam mail at that day. Mm. So no one cared. So when people would receive this, it basically on one side looked like this beautiful uh, mm. advertisement of these bottles, some picture, whatever it was. And the flip side looked like a sushi menu. You just put the quantity in pencil. That's amazing. You did your own multiplication. You did your own addition. Total is 14 bucks. Or you whatever. totaled it yourself and yeah. you sent it in cash to Mailed it back. the distillery and they shipped you a crate of whatever you ordered. Dude, that's amazing. And so it, nowadays, totally illegal to do that. But regardless, back then, that was how he gained a lot of national traction. And from that, you know, we found bottles as far as Maine. No to California to Florida. So truly, because of those tactics, they were able to be this national brand. Uh, we actually have in our office here at the distillery uh, a really cool painting that mm. an individual who was a big fan of ours out in Sacramento, California, he was having a drink in a wine store. And the wine store actually only has art on its walls that are from old advertisements of the Sacramento Daily Bee, the old newspaper mm. of the city of Sacramento. And this advertisement was a liquor store advertisement for some downtown Sacramento liquor store advertising its specials. And the ultimate special of the week was Rieger's monogram whiskey. Damn. $1.10 per quart. And so a quart is 32 ounces. And so a normal 750 ml is 25 and a half ounces. So you get essentially one a and a third bowl, whiskey bro. bottle That's for a $1.10. It's a pretty damn good deal. Damn. 
So everyone should have bought bottles and just held them in their basement and beat the shit out of inflation. But regardless, so um, Alexander Rieger did that. And so marketing was his big thing. And as part of that, they also would, with every order, they would put a tchotchke in it. So whether it was shoe shine brush, it was a bottle opener, it was a shot glass, it was a mini sample bottle, whatever it was. Mm. Something that people looked forward to when they would order. Mm. And based on that tactic, they had a marketing claim that they had over 250,000 unique customers because of that specific practice. The other side that he did was in 1914, Union Station, which originally it was called Union Depot and it was located in the West Bottoms. Yep. They relocated so that they could be more centralized to how the city was expanding, which is the way we know the crossroads to be today. So when it relocated, a bunch of businessmen bought land around it. And Alexander Rieger, again, my double great, uh, who was running the distillery, was no different, bought land just to the north of it, built a three-story hotel, and ran it for five years before Prohibition hit. But on it, he built the entire south wall that faced Union Station as a brick wall. So he could paint a massive mural on it. So it was all about advertising because it was right along Main Street. And Main Street in those days, from the train station... The trolley that was original to Kansas City came over the Main Street Bridge, went right past the Rieger Hotel. So if you came into Kansas City, Mm. you got on that trolley, the first intersection you arrived at, right in front of you was this three-story bottle of Rieger whiskey so that everybody would have that impression of what Kansas City is all about as their very first psychology theory of primacy and recency. The theory of primacy when you arrived in Kansas City was Rieger's whiskey. So that being said, the brand builder, we was, I love it. Uh, And the whole hotel bar was all Jay Rieger and co products. So he just knocked it out of the park. But when prohibition hit in uh, 1919, they sold it off because when the distillery was no more, they had no marketing point for it. So it just became a hotel. They weren't hotel operators, shut the distillery down, sold off the hotel building, gone dead forever. And that was normally where most people would consider the, that, segment or that chapter of history really ends amazing uh so much to unpack two things one is how'd you learn all these stories because the the brand has been built on stories which i love um so where'd you learn these and the second the there's fascination in your your psychology comment but especially in that direct mail piece that alexander the brand builder was putting himself quite literally in the in this audience's seat. <laughs> he's giving them this like custom invitation to, of course he's trying to sell to experience stuff. them. Yeah. And like, my God, that preaches today in 2023 louder than it did in, in, in the late 1800s. But that, um, that kind of empathetic, curious experience driven marketing worked and it's the right human play. Um, so anyway, I, I'd be curious to hear how'd you gather these stories? That's fascinating to me. Well, well, the real answer is we just made them all up. <laughs> so, so, so growing up, your your summer intern Haley, who we found out is not twenty one, uh, and she was not drinking here either. We just want to make sure that's on, on the, the record, record. Yeah. with the health inspector in the room. She, yeah, with the health inspector behind us. Uh, all he would care about is if it was a dirty glass. That's or right. Not, that's right. If you did it, but regardless, so growing up you know, we, we all steal our parents' alcohol, right? Anybody that says they never stole their parents' alcohol is either a liar or a Mormon. <laughs> and if they're a Mormon, they just haven't discovered that they drink yet in private in their basement, which all Mormons do. So any Mormons listening to this, yeah, you. I love it. <laughs> the shot glasses that we would steal really crappy alcohol out of, or, or that we would steal and pour crappy alcohol into to take shots of as kids, were these 135-year-old relics. They were sitting in the glass cabinet right next to these old whiskey bottles, right next to these old advertisements, next to these old corkscrews. So, so we, growing up, knew this history existed, yeah. but anybody listening to the show, if someone asked you what did your family do 100 years ago, you can think back and probably guess what they did, know what they did, whatever it is. But then immediately you're concerned about do you take a left turn or a right turn if you're listening to this in the car? That's right. Or, or if you're at home, it's oh, I need to hop in the shower before my event tonight, whatever totally. it is. It means yeah. nothing. Yeah. It's just history, and yeah. that's it. Yeah. And so I never really wanted to learn anything about it, nor did I really care because it was just this yeah. fragment of history. And so, you know, from a real, real end of the story, um, my dad was diagnosed with and died of cancer in a quick nine-week span in the summer of 2010. Mm. Oh my God. And he said to me when he had his cancer that 
hey, there's this restaurant that's going to go into the historic Rieger Hotel. If I'm not around for it when it opens, you have to make sure that when you come back for Christmas to visit your mom, mm-hmm. that you go to it so that someone who is, mm-hmm. at that time, I was going to be the last born Rieger alive. It's like, you have to go to it so a Rieger goes into it. and Make sure you just show them hospitality. Mm-hmm. Nothing beyond that. Mm-hmm. So he passed away. And so so then that Christmas of 2010, this restaurant opened and it was, if you got to think about put yourself in the place of 2010 and the idea of good food, good drinks really was not for sure a thing yet. For sure. We, 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 we looked at ambiance, not quality of what was going in your stomach as the end all be all. And so going to this place, they had the chef who had mysteriously and miraculously found a way to turn around the river club, which was just in this downward spiral for decades. Mm. And then he was partnering with this guy who knew how to make cocktails really well. Mm. Something that people were like, what do you yeah. mean? I love cocktails, rum and Coke. Rum, right. <laughs> That's right. So, That's right. so these two guys partnered together and they opened the Rieger restaurant and in the basement was this bar called Manifesto. Yeah. And so when they did Casey's that- Casey's first like brandable speakeasy. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Or for, yeah. first brandable or that, bar. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, and so the, the cocktail guy was a guy named Ryan, maybe. Yep. And Ryan is more or less Kansas City's, and every city has one, and it's getting tougher mm. and tougher to pinpoint nowadays, mm. but every city has this bar person that created the movement. It's like the coaching tree. It's, it's like- It's legitimately <laughs> the coaching tree. Yeah. And, yep. and it, like I was saying, that's why I was saying it's harder now, but- in 2017, if you said to me, talk to me about the history of bartending in Kansas City, being that I am a former finance guy and I don't come from that segment, I can look at it from an objective mm-hmm. lens. And I would say it started with Ryan, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then the next three bars in Kansas City that were worth anything were done by these three guys. And each of them, here are the years they studied under Ryan. Mm-hmm. And then from there, the next wave came to yeah. Manifesto. And those three started bars. But those first three people, they each had people that started bars. And you could legitimately trace everybody back three or four stops as mm-hmm. to, oh, you ultimately learned from Ryan. For sure. So regardless, this is all new to me. I was living in Dallas at the time working in an investment bank. And I come back for Christmas, go to the restaurant, see it, have a great time. That's a, and it was a great restaurant. It was a great restaurant. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah, it was COVID's biggest casualty. Yep. Um, yep. It manifesto combined. But went there and in the discussions where I first met Ryan, um, First night, we just became acquaintances. And second night, he threw out the random ideas like, oh, he's like, you know all about the distillery. Maybe someday we could bring it back. Gone, dead. Took about 12 months after that that we got together again and started having the discussions on it. And that was really the origin of it. And so the, the tougher part was the idea of what does it look like? What does it feel like? Because I was taught all along by my dad, never do things that are emotional. Mm-hmm. And clearly that was going to be an emotional Quite thing. Emotional. So I, a disclaimer up front said to him, I am mm. going to have nothing to do with this, period. I'm not mm. going to work here. I'm not going to run it. I am not going to help you officially raise money. I'm not going to invest nothing. I want to come back when I visit my mom. I want to come to this place. Mm. So I want to help you build your business plan. Mm. That's it. Why do you have no Full interest? Stop. Emotional. Yeah. So obviously yeah. it fit into that emotional category. Yeah. So literally the antithesis of investment banking. Right. hundred <laughs> percent. But, but, but the idea of business planning and strategizing that, all that, for sure. it was for all sure. about investment for banking. Sure. For sure. Yeah. But the, I, I can see you at that spot. I don't know you super well, but to the extent that I understand your story at that point in time, that is not a predictable path. Right. So as I was helping, I was, really driving the ship a lot. And he always joked and said it was all part of his secret master plan. (laughs) But what I was discovering was the idea of this Mm. nowadays, what we view distillery to be like so often when the public comes into our space, they expect that we are going to look just like every other local distillery anywhere in the country. You know, it's you walk into this bar and maybe it's really nice. Maybe it's not. And there's a window somewhere where there's some equipment in the back that you never actually see anybody operating, but maybe someone's walking through and you're like, are they even using the equipment or not? And it's really just a bar that they call a distillery and do the branding side of it. And that was exactly what he wanted to do. Cause Mm. again, keep in mind, he was bar first. That was his Mm. background. Mm. And so that was the biggest reason why I had no interest at all. Mm. And so as I was continuing to help, it got to the stage of 
maybe it's not the right business play. Mm. Maybe the right business play is actually something a little bit more extravagant, something that's mm. actually taking you away from your comfort zone and putting it into this distribution manufacturing mm. methodology. So that led it down to me basically saying, hey, I think this is a smarter play. I think you'll actually raise money mm. doing it that way versus the other way. What are your thoughts? And he was like, yeah, that sounds great. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, that was <laughs> tough conviction. So first question I asked him is I go, uh, who's going to help you make this stuff? And he was like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, I mean, we're going to raise money. Like, you got to have somebody that knows what they're doing. Mm. And he goes, oh, I will. It's like, oh, what do you know about making alcohol? And he goes, nothing. I'll learn it. And I go, well, we're not going to raise any money that way. Yeah. I was like, so who do you know? And he goes, well, I know this guy that ran Maker's Mark for 14 years as their master distiller. Maybe we could talk to him. Okay. And it was like, oh, uh, I should have led with that. But <laughs> yeah, sure, no problem. So we talked to this guy. His name was Dave Pickerel. Uh, we get done with the conversation after an hour, and he goes, such a cool idea. So exciting. You want to start it as a manufacturer and not a bar. So cool. The original family is at the helm. Uh, you know, I, I want to be a partner in this. Mm. And we get off the phone, and I'm like, holy shit, the guy from Maker's Mark wants to be a partner in this but you're going to have to tell him I'm not involved because this is your problem. He thinks the family is involved and I'm just on the call helping make this work. Yeah. And so he was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. So then a month later I was like, Hey, who's going to help with distribution? And he was like, Oh, I am like, I worked in sales for nine <laughs> months. And I was like, no, so it's like, Oh, my mentor helped Diageo around the world, fix tank array, trouble countries in six continents. Like we could talk to him. And I'm like, well, yeah, Oh, it's probably a good person to talk yeah. to. He has the exact same reaction. So it was after that one that that individual... Timestamp this real quick for us. Yeah, this yeah. Is, so yeah, so the Maker's Mark guy and this other guy, uh, they were 2012, 2013. Okay, okay. okay. And uh, this other gentleman who helped Tanqueray, he was like, oh, he's like, and I'll definitely be able to convince Tom Nickel to uh, come be our master distiller for gin. And I'm immediately like... Ryan on the phone, he's like, oh, that'd be amazing. And I'm like writing Google's names down. I'm like, who the hell is Tom Nickel? Right. One L or two L's. Oh, he's literally uh, the N-I-C-H-O-L. Uh, he was oh, the master distiller of Tanqueray. And he was the most awarded gin distiller in the history of the world. Uh, and had created every Tanqueray gin other than Tanqueray base. Okay. And is literally known as the world's best gin distiller to ever walk planet Earth. Mm. And I was like, well, this guy is just full of shit. If he think, we think that we're going to get the guy to leave Tanqueray that runs that this account, little thing here making 10 million cases a year of gins to go to Kansas City to distill on a 130-gallon still. Like, no. Nah. Nah, <laughs> it's just nuts. So regardless... Uh, it was the summer of 2013 that then mm. after all those conversations concluded and, you know, it's really been helping Ryan figure this out. And my wife just looked at me and she was my girlfriend. Then and she just goes, remember how your dad told you only move home if you ever had a reason. Mm. She goes, You're still in Dallas. Yeah. She okay. goes, I'm pretty positive that this is what that reason is. And he would say, yes, this is why you move home. And so from that, if it weren't for her words of general encouragement, I would have still been in the mental emotional phase and not realizing that the whole time, because I wasn't planning on doing it myself, I wasn't mm. building it emotionally. I was building it intelligently. Mm. And the idea that we kind of found that back door coming into this. Dang. And so from there, I just said, all right, great. Like I'm going to turn this on. And it was perfect because Ryan was running a restaurant and didn't have time yeah. to start a company up. And so from there, it really led to then me saying, great, I'm just going to take this. Mm. Like, I'm going to run with this and I'm going to raise all this money. I'm going to do all these things. And so, I mean, we really started raising money and knocking it out and started in this little known district yeah. uh, because it was all about manufacturing known as the East bottoms of Kansas yeah. city, which was the original farmland yeah. of Kansas city. So yeah. it fit from a historical perspective. The building was that we started in was uh, 15,000 square feet and the landlord wanted $2,500 a month. Uh, so it was a great deal. Yeah, so sure. we, we took it. Uh, and we just started making alcohol down in this East Bottoms neighborhood with the former head of mm. Tanqueray, the former head of Maker's Mark. The and those dudes came. Who they created, said yes. And they were all owners. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, the, yeah. unfortunately, the gentleman that ran Maker's Mark, he passed away in 2018. Mm. And our production floor is named after him. Mm. But uh, while we were in the middle of our big expansion of the building that you're sitting in now, but because he was so involved and in, he was my mentor, mm. hands down, uh, the things that you get when you bring on an expert like that is unparalleled because you are immediately going from I'll figure it out to 
I have to know the questions mm-hmm. to ask so that I'm respected by the people that have done it. For sure. And then when I provide them with my fork in the road scenario, they tell me exactly which path is correct and they'll tell me why. Maybe that's, let me tell you about the other side of that equation in 1984 when we did it that way or, you know, whatever it was. For sure. So these are all yours, Haley. She's like, what's 1984? She's like, like, is that a movie? Did that, was that real life? What happened then? Um, Good night. What a, what a wonderful origin. And I'm interested. uh, And, uh, and I think Ryan maybe is uh wonderful in the ways he's impacted this city like you said and there's something really beautiful and brave about his like oh i'll figure it outness and i'll oh i'll do that i'll learn it i'll do and then you know that kind of bootstrap gritty resilient mindset that's good and not bad not bad by any means and then contrast that with oh bring in experts in the field who've been doing this for 30 years and of course there's like lots of nuance and context on that on that spectrum, but to, to see how your brand has accelerated probably, um, because of those decisions and the freedom for, for you to kind of lead it that way, but also for Ryan to go, um, yeah, okay, cool. And, and to relinquish, um, relinquish is maybe the wrong word, but to, to surrender bits of control or perspective for a broader goal. I'm curious how you guys navigated that in those early years. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, I, I always talk, I, I said it earlier on the comment of him saying it was all part of a secret master plan. He really didn't do much. He came up with the idea and then he and I were talking and I kept trying to push him to do things. And like, I'll never forget the first documents and I have all these still and I still laugh about it. But I gave him this document of all these questions that I needed in order to start building out a capital raise presentation for him on his behalf. For sure including things such as, you know, call vendors and find out how much a glass bottle costs, find out how much a quart costs, find out how much a label costs. What will the electricity be in the new building? Yeah. Find out what the lead time is, how much is it going to cost to purchase the still, how much, you know, all these little things that you need to know that an investor is going to ask you about if it's not in a detailed presentation. And after the first month, I called him back and I was like, hey, like, what'd you find out on these questions? And he goes, oh, I haven't had time. I was like, oh, okay. Well, I'll just do it for you then. <laughs> and so month went by, knocked all this stuff out, called him, and I was like, hey, here's what I found out for you. Like, and based on that, here are my next questions I think you need to go find out. Month mm. went by, same thing. So it was really after that second time around that I was like, I'm going to do I, I was kind of, well, th- that was where I was like, this kind of sucks. Like, I don't want to do this for this guy. Yeah. And I, I don't even know this person really. Yeah. And so that was where I was like, God, this isn't even a good business model. And so from that, it was like, Love it. God, there's got to be a better way to do this. And then it was calling him and it was like, hey, do you want to do this? And he was like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, that, that's why he was like, whatever, because he was running, he was running a it. restaurant and yeah, bar. Yeah, for sure. Like they Which were and they were at the top of their game. Huge job. And so, you know, it was just the, yeah. the ability to sort of take it over. And it was almost like there was no one running it mm. from that conversation until my wife said, hey, I think you're supposed to do this. It was more or less me trying to provide guardrails of please keep mm. going forward mm. and him saying, Hey, keep going out further with the guardrails and like, keep showing me where they are. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And then it was like summer of 2013. He's like, ah, excellent. You're running it now. Good job. You know, that's why I always tell you, he always tells people it's part of his secret master plan. That's right. Uh, I love that. That's so good. Um, we're going to talk about the today reality of Jay Rieger and co for sure. And hindsight is always like, such a perfect teacher that we don't obviously on the other end of it, be able to predict what might have happened as you like reflect and look back on the last decade. What, what comes to mind of like it pick a number, a couple, two to three where you went, you had the fork in the road left or right and you made the right decision and the one that like compounded to the good. And then maybe is there a failure or two um, as you reflect on, on something that like today people walk in and are like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Uh, it must be so easy and awesome. Right. But like nobody sees those, those moments where it's like, Oh God, we might not make payroll or we might like foreclose on the bill, whatever those things are for you. So I'm curious on the like reflection side, where did you guys like without information, nail it and compounded the business and where, where is there a struggle or two that you're open to share. The the easiest answer to the question is 
they're the same. And it's a very odd way to answer a question that your biggest successes are also your biggest failures. I mean, you two are here right now, and the listeners, unless you've been here, you just don't understand it. This is a 48,000-square-foot historic building that was built in 1901 with a basement. You're sitting in the basement. I one time had a person describe this basement to me in its old original form before anything was done in here as a rape station. That's how awful this building was. This building was disgusting. It was actually very motivating mm. for me because I was like, told the architects, I'm like, Phew. yeah, it's described to me as this. It was like, no yeah. dark places. Yeah. All of our back of house area is like painted bright white <laughs> with like crazy LEDs. Like it's the yeah. happiest yeah. basement storage you've ever seen in your entire life. <laughs> you know, we even painted the ceilings like, that's awesome. You know, way over the top to just because of that one yeah. comment. Yeah. Uh, but you're changing but, a narrative and my gosh, but, that's awesome. But here we are, and we're in this neighborhood that nobody went to. Nobody, not even the government, invested in. And our own council members didn't even know where it was located. How stupid were we? Mm. And so the idea Mm. that, I mean, this is a significant eight-figure project we're sitting in today. Mm. And so I was 30. Mm. I was 29 when we bought the buildings, you know, just two years in. Um, you had to pick a stopping place and, and it was so crazy and it required so many incentives. And so the ability to be able to layer all of those on one after another, and you know, I've kind of realized that, uh, creating reality is just a positive way of saying you're conning people. <laughs> the future doesn't exist. So you decide what it is. I love that. And when you decide what it is, you're just a con man. You're mm. just creating reality. Mm. But someone has to. Mm. And so it doesn't matter what you do. You send an email to me saying, I want to interview you. You're conning me into doing this interview. Because you weren't like, thinking about that before that email came on. Totally. Yeah, yeah, so that's right. changing the way people think. Yeah, that's right. So from there, arguably, I would say that our biggest failures have been that we didn't believe in ourselves enough. And again, you look at this mm. place eight years in, and you're like, what do you mean you didn't believe in yourself right. enough? Like, this place is insane. I mean, we've got four bars. We produce... 2,600 barrels of whiskey a year. Mm. We produce all the gin, vodka we need. We've got three kitchens. We've got uh, a workout room for our staff, a historical exhibit, 100,000 square feet of finished spaces. So, I mean, it's mm. we're, we're, we're on the right path in, in general. But I'd say hindsight, yeah. Yeah. you wish you did more when you knew that, if you know what you know now, mm. what you could accomplish. And so the greatest success is also the ability to believe in, honestly, ourselves only, where, I mean, I'll never forget, I spoke to about 14 banks and all but our current lender who was petrified that if they didn't give the money that they would really be in trouble maybe, Mm. that all the other ones were like, this is the dumbest idea ever. This will never work. Mm. No one's going to go down there. Like, your concept doesn't exist. You're not copying something that people can relate to. You're expecting adults to go down there as if it's the power and light district, but it's not the power and light district, but things are in separate rooms. So you can't see different things. And you're like, yeah, you're just like literally giving me my narrative as to why I have to do it. Like (laughs) the world doesn't change unless we try new things. Mm. So again, it's a cop out answer, but the idea that your successes are also your failures because you weren't aggressive enough. You were too conservative. You know, those moments happen where I feel they're one and the same. That's so good. That's so good. Um, tell us about the building. So it, and, and, and more specifically how it relates to Jacob Rieger or Alexander Rieger. Like why, why this place? Why um, this project? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, going back on the origin of, of the restart, starting – Jay Rieger and Co. back up in a, and we restarted the company in 2014. So 95 years after they closed for Prohibition. Starting this business in a neighborhood that didn't have a historic story to it or vibe to it would, would have been, been incongruent. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, for sure. So you're already arriving at the conclusion. So, you know, Olathe out. <laughs> you know, Liberty out. For sure. Just yeah. Lenexa out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
in this neighborhood was so affordable. That was step one. Step two was, is it historic? Research the history of, we're on old historic brewing grounds of this family that had the largest brewery to the west of the Mississippi. It was bigger than Anheuser-Busch in the pre-prohibition years. It was called the Heim Brewery, H-E-I-M. So being able to operate in a space that had historical relevance to alcohol was a really cool factor. Not the deciding factor, but it was really great additive store if we ever wanted to dig into it. So that checked the big box. Um, but when we were starting to become too big two years in, we had three years left on our lease mm. in our warehouse that's to the south of where we are right now. And when we were in that building, I called the landlord and I said, hey, I'm supposed to give you a 90-day notice on our lease renewal and we're three years out. I have interest in acquiring our building, this historic building that you've asked us to babysit for you that doesn't have utilities that we're sitting in today. And the acre that is just dirt Damn. to our west for a fair price. Mm. And if you are unwilling to sell it, that's fine. But I'm letting you know now we will not be renewing our lease and we'll be leaving the neighborhood. And he's like, where are you going to go? And that time I didn't know. And where we ended up looking was we had a building specifically in the West Bottoms that we probably would have taken had the landlord not have tried to play games mm. with us. Mm. They still own the building and it's completely boarded up. So it's their loss. Mm. And then uh, the other site that I was in deep talks for, and this was in 20, late 2016, early 2017, was I wanted to, um, if we weren't going to take an old building and renovate it, which is what I always felt was the most appropriate thing for us, then I wanted to build somewhere that was not just a, you could pick any corner and do it. And I started talking to uh, people that were running this very not well-known area known as the Berkeley Riverfront. Okay. And the plot of land that I walked and said I wanted to build a distillery on and I was going to build this big glass wall and put all these bars in it and this manufacturing and it'd bring hundreds of thousands of people a year down was the plot of land where the current stadium's going. Love that. That's and awesome. at that time, they were like, we think we want to put a 20-story hotel on this property. We have no idea what we're doing with any of this. So we're not in a position to move on anything right now. Mm. And so more or less those two sets of talks fell apart Mm. At the same time that the gentleman who we bought these buildings from, who was the founder of Boulevard. Oh, no way. Uh, he came to us and was like, yeah, just take it. Like, here's my price. And it was nothing. That's and awesome. So we bought it and got to work. And fortunately, all of the tax credits aligned. But, you know, one of the biggest things mm. about it is mm. you bring someone to a neighborhood like this. And, you know, it's a, I always say it's a severely distressed mm. census tract both visually and economically. Mm -hmm. And when you're bringing someone to a neighborhood like this, you have to make them feel like they want to be there. That's right. right? When we're sitting in this room right now in the Hey Hey Club, you have no idea whether you're in New York City, you're in London, you're in Atlanta. Kansas City yep. on the plaza, you're in Kansas City by the airport, or you're in the East Bottoms of Kansas City. You don't care. That's right. Because it's awesome. Yep. You know, and that's what we really strive for with every that's single right. space that we've built. And so as a part of striving for those types of results what you discover is that in neighborhoods mm. that suck, and I'm using very layman's terms right now, <laughs> I, uh, I always say you have to overinvest in order to bring people there to For get sure. them to leave their comfort zone to say, what is all this talk about? Yeah, I'll skip the red door neighborhood. Red door's great, right? But I'll skip the red door to come here. I'll skip Overland Park to come here. I'll skip Liberty to come here. Yeah, Love red sure. door. A hundred percent. Me too. I'm, yeah, that's not a knock, but that's a... That's a different experience than, than this one. Yeah, T totally, yeah. So, sure. I mean, you know, we, we have a lot of, it, it took a while for our investors to really understand it also. Um, mm. What I would say is that a lot of them, when we built this, everyone was so, uh, use the phrase, mm. I mean, just everyone was blown away. For you know, sure. It's like, God, like, just bringing all these different concepts together, but they all feel similar and attached and, mm. you know, it's, it's you're, you're pushing people into spaces and you're pulling them from other spaces and you're, you know, it, it's this psychology puzzle that you're trying to solve of the public on a daily and momentary basis. 
You're the Ikea of distilleries. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it's kind of that way. I mean, um, really? One of the comments when we designed our historical exhibit was actually told the design firm that uh, I want to ensure that it doesn't offer an Ikea vibe to it so mm. that if someone is realizing they don't like history, they, they have a clear out. They can bail. They, they yeah. don't feel like they got to go through the maze. Yep. And they're like, cool, we got you. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's a over-investing in real estate developments in neighborhoods mm. such as this. Mm. And, you know, technically we're on the east side. So you think about that with the, the keywords of Kansas City and those trigger words and totally. all that. And, totally. You know, it's like whenever you see people doing projects on the east side and they're doing market rate projects, mm. I always say that you will be able to expect market rate returns. Mm. What that means in my eyes is that the neighborhood is not what you want it to be. If you're going to put in the amount of money to attract the same tenants mm. that already exist in the neighborhood, you are just prolonging that That's issue. Right. That's right. You've got to overinvest. You've got to at some point have somebody willing to sacrifice the financial mm. return. And so for us, mm. we own our own real estate. Mm. We operate in our real estate. We're in 27 states and three countries on our distribution business. Mm. So from there all of our money isn't made here. Mm. So all the money that's made here is just part of the equation. But yeah. We're not solely dependent on people coming to this neighborhood. We still get 150,000 people a year. It's awesome. It's so awesome. Um, so good. I, I'm interested in you personally in how your leadership has evolved, changed, grown, been stressed, been... Um, how's your awareness around what's at stake for you as this business and this brand has obviously come back to life in a major way. Um, and, and it's, uh, you today and the complications and the complexities of this business versus, um, the 2013 version when you and I last probably spoke, um, how, how has 15, maybe 2015. Yeah. How has that journey changed for you? And, and what are, what has that journey been like? When starting out, fall of 2014, I was too cheap to turn the lights on. Mm. We had ceiling heaters. Our biggest mistake, actually, I'll go back on that question for a second, was initially we just, just totally skipped over the whole like bottling machine aspect. <laughs> so we That's just, awesome. it was like the miss, you know? Awesome. And you know, we were also projecting doing like, 20 pallets in the first year and we did like 20 pallets in the first 30 days. Damn. So it was like, fuck <laughs> regardless. I love that. So, I mean, I, I remember nights where I stayed here and November of 2014, I'll never forget. We had a really, really cold mm. November, very odd and peculiar, peculiar for how cold it really got. Mm. And that temperature drop because I was too cheap to turn the heat on. When we didn't turn the heat on, our warehouse was, I mean, like I would see my breath mm. and I would be here till four in the morning, shivering, putting labels on glass bottles by myself just to be filled the next day by me one at a time mm. until I couldn't feel my fingers anymore. Mm. And those types of things where you remember literally shop backing 15,000 square feet, labeling inside without willing to turn the heat on. I mean, the stupid stuff that you hear about is the stories. Those are kind of the fun yeah. elements as to like the beginnings, you know, bathroom cleaning. But I mean, at the very beginning, I was marketing. I was sales. Uh, mm. We always had a bunch of people that wanted to help with the production. That was a really fun aspect of it up sure. front is we would put Facebook posts out, which because Facebook was the thing. Yeah, yeah, back yeah. And Haley's looking at us like, what's Facebook? Um, Meta? <laughs> and she's blushing. Some of my parents are on. <laughs> but when you, when you do all that stuff, it, it's actually hard to let go of things. Mm. And, and so the mindset there is... So damn hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're doing everything yourself, you're so efficient, right? Because you're, there is no meetings for communication. Communication is occurring in the moment. Right now. Like yes. your brain is telling your yes. brain what to do next. Yes. So that was definitely hard. And the, the first like outside of production, significant employee that we had outside of me was my wife. She mm -hmm. came over and started working for us and took marketing, brand work, mm -hmm. charitable donations, PR, mm -hmm. that whole side away from me. 
It was perfect. It was Love the it. first division of labor that we really had because I never really did the production or focused on production. Mm-hmm. We hired a great distiller at the beginning. Mm-hmm. He's been great ever since. His team's great. So mm-hmm. never really had to divide into that sen- segment. But you transition away and, you know, alluding to your comment very, very specifically and directly, mm-hmm. you know, I've even had to learn to grow as a person to where you transition away from this I'll do it mentality to everybody has their own moment in time, but when you choose to do it all the time, you are actually putting yourself further behind and it takes the moment to recognize if I teach this person, it's going to take me to put an SOP in place. Mm -hmm. It's going to take me 10 times as long to do this activity. So damn long. Next month, it's going to take me five times as long as I need. The next month, it's going to take me twice as long as I need. Mm. The next month, it's going to take me looking over someone's shoulder the same amount of time it would take me. Then after that, I don't have to deal with it ever, ever again. Ever. It's a process. Mm. And so getting into that mentality is a really tough attribute, mm. and it takes time, and it takes patience. But I'll never forget sitting in Terry Dunn's office when I was starting up, and not starting up, probably two years in, and I asked him to his face. I said, my biggest concern is letting go of the compliance work because if it gets wrong, we're screwed. It's my ass. Yep. And he said, there's never the right time mm. to relinquish very important work. You just have to have a feel for it. Mm. And so those are some of those things where you're like, cool. Like you're literally writing your own <laughs> path as you go. Yeah. You pick. Yeah. And that's the yeah. biggest thing is there is no right or wrong. There is no blueprint. The blueprint is just, it's a feel. It's a vibe. For sure. Do everything when you feel like yeah. you're at the right moment. And yeah. if you don't do it, you don't do it. If you do it. Yeah. Fix it if it's not right. And if it's perfect, move on. Yeah. So good. I, I love how you frame that up because I'm not systems process by nature. Um, I'm much more, oh, we're going that direction. And I'm hopeful that there will be enough people hanging around to follow. Um, and maybe this is a good idea. And if it's not, it's still going to, like, we're going to pretend, we're going to con people into believing it is, <laughs> like you said earlier. Um, but my goodness, every single damn time when my small lizard brain gets scared and um, controlling and worried that it is up to me and I have to be the put the bottle on the label at 4 a.m. with freezing ass cold hands guy, um, it doesn't go that great. <laughs> and, and those points of uh, clarity, teaching, empowering, reminding and and then ultimately like releasing and sur- for me surrendering that Able. stuff is like whoa it goes better when Rachel runs the thing it goes way better when Haley's boss Chelsea runs the thing it goes way better um and those those moments are uh and it also may not be the way you would have done it that's right and that's maybe pro- it's better that's probably a good thing <laughs> yeah that's right that's right um last question I've I know we've taken up we'll, we'll finish with our our final five um and this is a question we ask sometimes in like video stories we're working on or interesting like anecdotes, but um, what's the most rewarding part about this for you? And, and then maybe like the, the sub foundational question is like, how do you define a good life with all of this stuff that you've got and brought? I mean, there's just such cool legacy and great, great, great grandfather and the, the pride of restoring a neighborhood and bringing a brand to life and employing all these people and providing these great experiences. I don't want to answer the question for you. Um, but, but how do you define like wake up in the morning and like, damn, this is a good life? So the biggest thing to remember is it's a job. And that's so often I, I get people all the time. I was just with two uh, members of Missouri legislative body. And right before I came down here and literally they're like, God, you just have the coolest job. And I go, ah, use the word job. (laughs) Did you catch that? They're like, yeah, okay. I get it. Makes sense. The most rewarding thing is when you talk to people, because when I just alluded to that, this is my job, you don't know what type of an impact you make or how cool people think what you're doing is until you speak to them. That's right. And so whenever I talk to people that have never been down here, I know who hasn't been down here when they're talking to me about my business because they're looking at me like I run a distillery that's a bar that happens to have a little window where they make alcohol once a month. And those are all the other distilleries around the country that are 
tiny right. local distilleries. And the people that have been down here, mm. they don't say those things. Mm. Like, holy, to your point, it's the holy shit. Yeah, that's right. How did you do this? Yeah, that's right. And so being able to sort of activate that, we describe this facility as a Disneyland for adults. <laughs> Seeing adults be like children, it's an inspiring awe moment within. Adults that talk about how much fun they had doing something is so rare in society these days. We are such a divided society as a whole that the one thing everyone can agree about is every adult wishes we could always be treated like kids for the rest of our life. Pick it. Doesn't matter what. Oh, you like someone feeding you and making your food for you? <laughs> oh, you like someone cleaning your room? Oh, you want to go to a place where a bunch of bars are all right next to each other so you can just get really drunk with your friends? These are all things that as adults were like, yes, <laughs> count right. me in. Play. I yeah, want to do that's it. Right. That's right. So the most rewarding thing is 100% what we don't recognize on a daily basis because we all get so bogged down in our jobs. And it's what we are able to be as sort of this filler for this entire city. And we've gone and I was joking around the other day with one of our investors that there is very, I think we're going to kind of be in a little bit of a lull over the next decade or so of startups that are very impactful and purely based on economic environment, capital constraints, whatnot. Debt's harder to borrow. Equity is going to be more stingy. Yep. And so, so you have these sets of companies that it's honestly just a bunch of people that are all the same rough age that started in the last, you know, started between five and 10 years ago. Mm. There's us, mm. there's Charlie Hustle, mm. there's Maiden KC, there's Swell Spark, uh, you know, pro athlete went from yeah. this, yeah. you know, thing nobody had heard of to this thing cool, a lot of people fun heard of. company. Yep. yep. Um, lot. So, yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the idea mm -hmm. that that occurred, those are like the companies that as a whole make Kansas City a fun place to live For sure. that people want to brag about Kansas City to others. And, and the super odd thing is that all those companies started around the exact same time other than mm. pro athlete. But mm. when Andrew started running, Andrew Dallas started running yeah. it, it, it yeah. turned into what it became. But yeah. regardless, yeah. Um, you forget about that though. Mm. And so when you talk about the favorite thing that you do, it's, I mean, we, we donate to 300 charities a year. We uh, have over a hundred people employed. We pick up all the trash in this neighborhood we buy trouble property owners out around us that are bad for this neighborhood and bad for their neighbors. I mean, you know, you're doing all the things that you know you're being a good neighbor because I'm so firm on bridges at every single moment of your day. You choose whether to walk across it, walk around it, or burn it. And if you're going to burn a bridge, I will almost guarantee you that mm. at some point in your life you're going to come back around You'll always remember you burned that bridge and you will always know the moment in time right. in which you remembered that you burned that bridge. For sure. For and sure. so if you never burn a bridge, when someone says the most mm. insulting thing to you, and if you say fuck you to that person, mm. you've burned that bridge. Mm. If someone says something insulting to you and in four years you run across that person and you need to ask that person for assistance, they're sure as shit probably not going to remember <laughs> they said anything to you. And if they do, they're guaranteed going to help you because they know that they right. treated you improperly. Mm. Mm. And so that's a big one is when we're starting to get with who we are and, and what we've become, our unprecedented access that we have started to garner from, whether it be politicians, it be business leaders or whatnot. What I've discovered is that what we have built here at J. Rieger & Co., whether it be the experience you have in your home at a bar, 27 states. I mean, I got the guy that makes all the nuclear weapons at Honeywell. Okay. He's out in Copenhagen with his family right now, and he's like, "Tell me a bar that I can have Jay Rieger and Co at." That's awesome. And so, I you know, you, you, but like you, you meet these people, and it's like, it's a mm. it's gamifying life. Like mm. it's a fun element for them. Mm. So, being able to do that, you become a connector. That's a fun part yeah, for me. For sure. But it's truly these experiential moments that yeah. people look to us for how they 
get away from their life. Jay Rieger and Co. is the thing. It, it's it's consumer discretionary, but it's arguably a consumer staple. Right. Whether coming to our facility or having it in your house, like it's it's just. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a huge alcohol drinker myself. Like I'll fully admit that. Yeah. But there's a moment in time where we're all with our group of friends, and we're like, that's the most. Yeah, like I just need to detach from life and have a great time with my friends. Yeah, that's right. And that's ultimately what we're here for, regardless of how you want to experience it. And my gosh, what a um, kind of, you know, bookend to the conversation of like Alexander, the brand builder, <laughs> and your leadership of this of this revered, storied, historical, and should I say it, very damn progressive uh, brand as well, um, rooted in legacy, but like built for for what's to come, which is beautiful. Um, but, but what you just described is the stories you get to tell around a glass of whiskey or a, or a table with friends or in the Hey Hey Club. With you, you mean when I'm drinking alone? <laughs> I've, I've done that. I've shared my challenges there. Anyway, the, um, but man, like that's why you're in it. It's for the stories that get to be told. And uh, I think it's really cool, man. Um, let's wrap with our final five. Yeah. yeah. yeah sorry. Let's do it. Um, what's your favorite, what, what's a book you would like recommend or, uh, one you've read, listened to podcast, something. My, my, yeah. Yeah. My, my <laughs> wife will tell you immediately. I don't read books. Um, I have a book on my desk or on my, uh, counter or my bedside table. That's the outsiders. It's all about capital allocation. Love it. And I, I need to get into it, but, um, super easy read too. I just read so much during the day of current events. Mm. I'm a very big financial news yeah. reader. I'm a very big geopolitics reader. Um, I'm a macro person, and I don't come from this industry. So that's why a lot of our investors and our the people like that it. joined this company like yeah. it so much is because we're not being led by somebody within the industry, but we have all the people within the industry to help guide. I love it. So I, I really enjoy the idea of feeling as if I'm informed and I can make decisions that are based and rooted, maybe not on specific industry expertise, mm-hmm. but where is the world going to be heading type? So good. Uh, you're a dapper and well-dressed guy, but when you dial it down and put on a t-shirt, what's, your, I'm go- in shorts. what's your go-to t-shirt? <laughs> uh, you know, I, my, my go-to t-shirt. It's funny. I, I did a podcast the other day and they did a, we interviewed your wife, all these questions and you have to see how closely you get. And I failed really miserably. Ouch. Uh, Oh, I've got my perfect shirt. Yeah. Okay, come on. So this is only typically worn at my house. So during COVID, it just got to be so tough on a daily basis that um, I actually, I don't know how they targeted me, but somehow digital marketing targeted <laughs> right. me perfectly. Uh, it's a baby blue, powder blue shirt. Okay, I'm in. And it has Love that color. two like clearly goofy, cartoony, hand-drawn clouds with a rainbow connecting. <laughs> and it says i hate people <laughs> and so i only wear it around our house when i get out of the shower at night that's and great. anytime i like say hi to a neighbor they and i'm in it <laughs> hey bro they're like <laughs> they look at my shirt and one of those eyeballs but the best part is that my uh five and a half year old so good every time i wear it and my three-year-old every time i wear it they're like rainbows, <laughs> happy, and I'm like, well, read the subtext. That's kind of the point of the shirt. Is yes, that's yes, good. Yes, yes. That 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 is a pretty good description of COVID. Actually, that yeah. T-shirt. That's a pretty damn good description. Um, your favorite place on earth is where? Oh man, my favorite place on earth. So I'm a little bit of a weirdo and I'll go back on a specific moment in time Mm. where I was most, uh, I'm not saying this from like a goofy standpoint, like I was most at peace and Mm. I don't like hiking. I don't do any of the outdoorsy shit. (laughs) There's something about, I was staying at a house for a bachelor party in 2012 in outside of Livingston, Montana, Mm. you fly into Bozeman and our house was right along the Yellowstone river. Come on, and so, you know, for some reason, I was the first friend that in all of my friend group that matured, and so I was waking up at six thirty in the morning and making coffee, and you know, everyone See wake up at like yeah. nine a.m. kind of a thing, and I was reading a book about how to start a distillery, more or less distillery for dummies, not called that, but 
forget what, yeah. which one it was. Yeah. And I would sit out there, and this was March or May. It was warm enough that I was in shorts and a T-shirt, or mm. sorry, shorts and a sweatshirt. There were snowflakes, but it was mm. like a, one of those 40-degree snows. I was drinking my coffee, and the river is just running right in front of me. And it was one of those moments that I was like, and you That's just it. see vast, you know, green space in front of you, and you can see deer and elk and moose and all that, and then mountains in the extreme distance beyond that. And it was like one of those surreal moments in time. Yeah, that's good. That's a good, that's a great story. Um, What does human first mean to you? I would say that human first, being completely uneducated on your guys' definition, I'll go back to something that I said a minute ago of the bridge burning. Mm-hmm. And I, I really view it probably as the exact same. Yeah. Is that whether you're burning bridges f- with organizations or people, it's all the same. The human element mm. still rules mm. until AI. But love it. From the human first side, you know, even go back on us and again, no idea where you're specifically going with the human first side. But when COVID first started, if you ask any single one of our staffs what the first priority was, one of the so, number so. one things that I said was, I promise I'm going to work my ass off to save every single one of your jobs so that every single one of you can pay your mortgage, pay your rent, buy food for your families, pay your utilities. And you either have a leader that cares about that or they care about their car payment. That's right. And so from that, that was ultimately the root of why we did what we did with handset. I mean, it's a different story, but yeah, yeah. We pivoted and we kept making whiskey. And so I changed the production schedules. So our production team got in at 3 a.m. They were making whiskey, 8 a.m. The rest of our staff that worked in the restaurant side, Mm. they became hand sanitizer factory workers. Mm. And we made hand sanitizer every day, seven days a week for the first 10, 11 weeks or so. And then uh, supply chain caught up. But what it did was it provided that opportunity that when... To keep some money coming in. Keep some money coming in. I mean, keep a lot of money coming in. But we knew it would end and dry up at some point. But what it also did was it provided an opportunity for all of our staff members mm-hmm. to, because at the early phases of COVID, nobody was open for anything. For sure. And so it provided, we provided three meals a day to our staff. We provided, Damn. it was like $18, $20 an hour to them just as everyone got the same mm-hmm. flat pay. Um, mm-hmm. And we had companies bringing food to us. That's awesome. Because they were like, we don't know how to help right now. And so you provided this, several of our employees mm-hmm. made comments during that time that they said they felt guilty. Because they were like, we work for somebody who figured it out. And all of my friends work for people who didn't. Mm. And they're all jobless. And here I am doing arguably better than I was before. (laughs) And my friends are like, oh, I can't do anything with you because I don't have any money. And they're like, do I pay for their stuff or whatnot? So (laughs) I I would say that at the end of the day, if you take care of the people around you, whether or not they take care of you, when you need your ass wiped when you're old, mm. you'll probably at least have some people to wipe your ass. <laughs> Whoa. Got it. Yes. Well said. And, well, uh, and Probably I'm, figuratively I'm also, in, not literally. Yeah, yeah. But I'm instantly reminded of gay on the first floor. Oh, she's and, the best. And, like, you, you couldn't, in a factory, produce a more hospitable, kind, warm human who's, like, walking us down here and thoughtful and, and like, Whatever, maybe Gay still has a job here if you would have laid everybody off. I don't know if she was here before or not. The point is that in that, when it's when the crucible's hot and when the fire's burning um, and when leaders step into that gap and say like, hey, I'm going to do everything in my damn power to not let you off and we're going to do something entirely different to create some revenue. This whole it's so good, man. This whole business loves that woman. How so could you not? She's literally <laughs> the one that everybody turns to whenever they need mm. Any form of support, she's just the best. Yeah, how could you? But know? again, someone like that yep. wouldn't give that element of themselves. That's right. If it wasn't, if she was a transactional number on a spreadsheet. Oh, sort rank by salary, top twenty percent are fired. See, we've had so many people in this organization go through troubled times in their life, mm-hmm. and welcome to being human. You, you determine whether or not you like working somewhere based on how you're treated when you go through those times of That's right. trouble. That's right. And you can quickly determine whether or not it's where you want to be yep. or not. And that's yep. why people always say the best jobs in the world aren't the ones that pay the most. That's right. Yep. That's right. All right, man. Last one. When it's all said and done, what do you want to be remembered for? You know, it's a, 
it's a very loaded question as to what you want to be remembered for. And you could also ask it to the contrary. What do you not want to be remembered for? Mm. But we are, and I, I'm saying this a little bit looking at Haley, who's what are you, 20 years old. Of course you are, because you said you turned 21 in a year. <laughs> you only know chaos and controversy. Mm. It's so unfortunate yeah. that you're 20 years old and your entire adult, quasi-adult life is chaos. Mm. And that's been what people push and strive to have in society. And it didn't used to be that way. And so you either buy into all that shit or you don't. And I, I hate politics. I I don't know what I am. My wife doesn't know what I am because <laughs> no one makes any sense. You know, it's like you want to operate one way mentally yeah. and then with this, you want to just flip your mentality as to how to approach a problem different into issue. something else that's yeah. totally unrelated. That's and you're like, well, how do those... They don't even make sense. But being remembered honestly, and this is so stupid. I mean, but this follows your human first thing, but it's, it's silly to even say this base level mm. comment. You just want to be remembered for not being an asshole. Mm. It sounds, mm. like I said, so basic, mm. so simple, but we're so far past that in society for now sure. that, for sure. you know, I always look at it from running a business standpoint, and there's arguably two types of leaders. There's uh, leaders of businesses that work. Mm. Yep. That is. Yep. You have the people with whips and you have the people that put everyone on a barbell around them and they start squatting. Mm. You pick. Mm. Do you stand up high with a whip and you tell everyone how stupid they are? Or do you keep squatting as many people as possible until people around you are like, Oh, shit, man. I'm going to get off this barbell and I want to work alongside you. That's right. Like, thanks for supporting me all these years. Mm. And that servant leadership style is something that I feel nowadays, especially with for people sure. like Haley's age coming out. You know, I mean, it, it's for a sure. much more well-received methodology. Mm. And going earlier to the commentary, mm. you know, it's you release something to someone else to do and it takes 10 times as long. Then it takes five times as long and then twice as long and then the same amount of time. And then you don't do it anymore. And you've now enabled somebody and empowered them to do That's something. Right. That's right. And so building that up, you know, for us, it's if the public tells our staff, wow, Andy Rieger is a great person, like you're so lucky to work there. If our staff has a different experience, they either A, could poison that person or B, they're <laughs> like, wow, these, these people have no fucking idea. Mm. And so being that consistent person all around, mm. not being an asshole goes to the same context yeah, as right. when I drive in my driveway at night. I know no one's following me mm. because at the end of the day, I have a saying in business and this is where I'll end this podcast on my end is I don't like to go to bed at night feeling like I screwed somebody over and I sure as shit don't like going to bed feeling like someone screwed me over. That's right. So anytime I'm in a contentious business discussion, I will lay that out on the table. Mm. Very first thing. Mm. Hey, the goal is for me to not feel like I'm screwing you. Mm. And the goal is for me to go to bed feeling like you didn't screw me. And when you lay the groundwork at that level, totally so good. Everybody looks at you and is like, "All right, great, cool. Let's yeah. just find the middle ground." Then, yeah, we we use a phrase like, "Hey, cards are up here." Like, there's no surprises. Like, all of our cards are up. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, that's cool too. World is a Venn diagram. Um, yeah, you got to find out yeah. where the overlap is, and if you can yeah. figure that out, uh, yeah. there's actually a great. Uh, it's a quote that isn't necessarily something that is is earth shattering, but mm. it was just from a relevant event as we're in. August of 2023, and the quote came from uh, Warren Buffett in their Berkshire annual meeting, verbatim, if you figure out where their self-interest is, you can judge where their behavior is going to go. Mm. And there's your cards on the table commentary. Mm. So good. Andy, this was a blast, man. I had uh, not, I had, I had awesome expectations and you exceeded them. So thank you, sir. I really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Um, anything we can do to support you on this journey? Oh, I mean, we're, we're all just about brand awareness. We're about yeah. to start releasing the best four-year-old whiskeys the world's ever seen at, Come on. you know, low 30 price points so that it's your everydays. Uh, you know, we're giving Kentucky a run for their money. 
We got the world's best whiskey personality coming here at the end of this month, August of 2023, because mm. he sees what we're doing on the whiskey side of things. And he's like, he lives in Louisville. And he's even like, damn, damn. you guys are really starting to take on Kentucky with the quality awesome. of the spirits you're putting out. So for us, honestly, it's that it's that brand awareness. And it's the, uh, it's the element also of pick the things. Mm. If you live in Kansas City, pick the things that make a difference in your community. Don't just pick things because they're local. And if someone, if everyone could judge us based on our attributes, we would probably be more successful than if people only judge us locally because we're local. It's awesome. Because when you're local, everybody is local. When yep. you're judged on your attributes, you're actually being judged for the things that you're striving to be judged for. Boom. Great way to end it. Andy, you're the man. Thank you, bro.